And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. As we start off a brand new week, a uh, big week this week. We've got GDP coming out. We've got the FOMC meeting later this week. So lots to be talking about. Obviously, a lot of things that are going to be kind of potentially creating some volatility in the markets. We'll see, of course, more importantly than all of that, is that we continue into earnings uh, season. Of course, this week is going to start to see a lot of those other bigger names, Apple, Microsoft, etc. This week, next week uh, is going to be a big, big flood of big corporate news in terms of earnings and outlook. So that's obviously going to be uh, putting some weight on the markets as well. But other big news, of course, this weekend, Barbieheimer. Uh, that is the two bombs that hit the the uh, theaters this weekend, creating the second highest gross on record so far. And that's just over the, the three days. We haven't got the final Sunday numbers in yet. But the new Barbie movie was an absolute blockbuster this weekend. People showing up in theaters dressed in pink, wearing suits and hats. I mean, really getting into it. Haven't seen something like that since Rocky Horror Picture Show where people were showing up in, in outfits and costumes. Um, then, of course, the other movie out this weekend, another bomb. Uh, Oppenheimer, which did absolutely fantastic. Again, the story of the making of the atom bomb um, back in with an all-star cast, Matt Damon, Stanley Tucci, just a whole, uh, just a whole big uh, group. So it was, it was nice to see that uh, two movies coming into theaters that people actually wanted to go see. So maybe some people should, uh, you know, like Disney, should maybe take a clue since neither one of these were Disney movies and uh, start making movies that people want to see. And guess what happens? People actually show up and pay astronomical ticket prices for them. But uh, congratulations to both those, uh, both those movies. They're actually doing really well so far in the theaters. Um, outside of that, though, this week is going to be a, a good bit of economic news. We'll be taking a look at GDP um, again. You know, this is the big kind of the big conundrum. We keep expecting this recession to show up anytime soon, and it just kind of keeps getting pushed out further and further. We kind of addressed this, this uh, in, in some recent articles on our website, that a lot of this has to do with this massive flood of monetary liquidity that uh, was put in, you know, by the government. And we kind of all have, you know, expecting that, you know, we're going to have a recession on a normal, regular basis as the Fed was hiking interest rates. But what we failed to, you know, counter into that uh, analysis was this massive flood of liquidity coming in from the government through the Inflation Reduction Act and other spending. But, you know, that is, of course, all debt-driven spending in non-productive investments. And that is going to also require uh, an increase in interest service. So as interest rates continue to go up, that's going to, you know, obviously, well, I shouldn't say as interest rates keep going up because they've been coming down a bit, but they're still elevated. And of, of course, now we're talking about enough debt out there that we're spending more than a trillion dollars a year in interest service just on the debt. So again, we think about tax revenues a little bit north of $5 trillion uh, in terms of tax revenues. Now, tax revenues are declining here because of slower economic activity. But still, we're brought in about $5 trillion in revenue in the, in the latest quarter. So a trillion of that will just go immediately to pay interest on the debt. So, you know, it, it seems to be much more complicated now to make ends meet for the government. So this idea that, 
you know, potentially we could maybe cut some spending to get back to some type of balanced budget and the economy seems to be a little bit more uh, of a far-fetched idea because of this massive amount of interest service that we've got to pay. And of course, it's just the consequence of going from, you know, $9 trillion in debt back in 2007 to $32 trillion now. I mean, it's just been a massive surge in debt in just the last, really, um, you know, two presidential cycles. It's just amazing how fast we've, we've increased debt. So, again, it's just a function of spending and, and how we put money to work. But again, uh, the money that we're spending on debt, certainly not going to productive investments, uh, when you do things like $5 trillion worth of checks to households, which again, you know, has to be paid for somehow, it doesn't create a return on investment. So here's what you need to know before the bell. Today is the NASDAQ rebalancing. Now this is the rebalancing of the NASDAQ. What the goal of the rebalancing is, is they are gonna take these top 10, 12 stocks and they're gonna change the weighting in those stocks to lower the percentage weight that they have in the index. This is requires selling of the index. So the big concern, of course, is that, and this has been, as this has been announced over the last week or so, a lot of people have come out and said, well, this is gonna cause a massive crash in the NASDAQ. And that's probably not gonna be the case today. Everybody knows this is coming. The market was well aware it was coming. And again, we did see a bit of that early kind of action by institutional investors that were rebalancing their portfolios ahead of today's rebalance. But today, the index funds will have to rebalance all of their positions. So <clears throat> the concern was is that this was going to cause a big, because of the number of index funds that are out there, this was going to cause a very big decline in the NASDAQ. That's likely not going to be the case. As I've been saying for the last week or so, everybody knew this was coming. And so everybody's already well aware of this. It's already priced into the markets. That correction that we saw last week a bit in the NASDAQ is likely mostly done. We could see a bit of additional pressure today, of course. We'll see right now futures are pointing higher on the NASDAQ, suggesting that this is certainly not going to be anything of major consequence for an investor that is kind of tracing, cha chasing the trend of the markets right now. Corrections back to the 20-day moving average, which is where we are right now, have been decent entry points to actually add exposure to NASDAQ-related stocks. I'm not saying you do that because markets are a bit extended here, uh, obviously, just on the terms of just this rally that we've had from the beginning of the year. Uh, but we are triggering a very short-term sell signal. So we could see some additional pressure on the NASDAQ in the next day or so. But the big concern, as I said, was this idea that this rebalancing was causing a very big drop in the NASDAQ. And as we've been talking about for the last few days, it's going to be a nothing burger. We'll get through this today. There is going to be some, I would expect some volatility in NASDAQ stocks today. That would certainly not be surprising. But again, if they're selling the top stocks, that means they're buying the other 96 stocks that are in the index. So again, just because they're selling at the top, that money has to go somewhere in the index. That's part of the rebalance. So as the top stocks come, we can certainly see some pressure in Microsoft, Apple, etc but buying strength in a lot of other stocks in the index. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, I'll have Mac together, I hope, and we will get back to work talking about the markets and the economy and your money. Don't go away.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And so welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, so as I said, uh, really, we kind of we're getting into kind of the real thrust of earnings now. Uh, today, we've got Domino's Pizza, which is going to be kind of an interesting look. Uh, again, when you start talking about the consumer, how's the consumer doing? Are they holding up? Are they doing OK? Um, you know, because that since consumer spending makes up 70 percent of the economy, tells you a good bit about what's happening economically if people stop ordering pizza for delivery. So be interesting to pay attention to what Domino's Pizza has to say on their conference call. Um, you know, from this, what you're looking for is, are people, you know, buying more pizzas, right? Having them delivered. Or are they, you know, ordering pizza, but say picking it up to save the delivery fee? Or, or are they just not ordering as much pizza, right? Just trying to cut costs. So there'd be some good clues about the state of the, and, and you think about the people that order pizza, right? That's a very mainstream food item to have delivered, right? Or just to, to buy, right? So if you're thinking about going out to eat or, you know, think about, you know, ordering food, you know, Chinese food and pizza, um, you know, pizza is a very good indicator of what's happening with kind of the average American because that's not a, a food that's exclusive. You know, it's not like Wagyu steak or a tomahawk, right? That's kind of more relegated to upper income earners. Pizza is all across the gamut. So this is going to be a really good indicator of the average American consumer. So it'll be interesting to watch uh, Domino's uh, earnings today. Uh, Logitech also announcing today Ryanair uh, in terms of kind of budget airlines you know, see how they're doing. But really kind of the big earnings start tomorrow. Uh, we've got Google, Microsoft, uh, CalMain Foods, General Electric, General Motors, Raytheon Technologies, PacWest Bank, um, which is uh, PacWest, by the way, is another one of those banks that was on kind of the verge of being taken over. So their announcement will be another. Again, we've, we've had a lot of announcements from the regional banks. They've been good so far. But again, PacWest was one of those that was really potentially kind of right there on the border of, of having problems. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Uh, Spotify tomorrow, uh, along with Texas Instruments, Verizon, uh, Visa, and 3M. Tomorrow. So again, we're just really kind of getting into the big heart of earnings season. Tell us a lot about what ha what's happening uh, economically, right? Because since earnings have, to, and I'm actually writing an article about this, you know, earnings have to relate to economic growth. And there's a longstanding historical correlation between economic growth and earnings. And those can't deviate too far from each other. The problem is, is that markets have gotten deviated from both economic growth and earnings growth. And what that can and what those can generate to, you know, over time. So, uh, again, I'll be interested to pay pay attention to what these companies have to say. But again, this whole week is going to be very heavy in terms of earnings announcements, um, et cetera. So, again, again, just, you know, something is just, you know, while we kind of the markets are kind of doing their thing, it's important to continue to pay attention to what these earnings are and what they actually are saying. And again, really beyond the headline, um, when we take a look, and I've got an article um, coming out, I think, uh, tomorrow, um, and we'll probably discuss this in more detail tomorrow. But if you take a look at, you know, really, really look at the earnings, right? Not just what they report, 
but start to understand what these earnings are actually saying about the company and, and, and where these, um, these earnings come from and where these estimates come from. And there's a lot of tools that are used by companies to make earnings look better than they actually are. And so the question you have to ask yourself as an investor is, I'm, am I really getting the earnings that I'm paying for? And again, we don't care about that in the short term. And, and the, the problem that we have as investors is we tend to forget about the long-term dynamics because that's so far out there. That's like next year type stuff. And we just go, oh, it's going up, so I need to be in this, right? But we forget that what we're paying for is the expectation of future cash flows and future streams of earnings. And if you overpay for those today, you're going to wind up making less money in the future and potentially losing money if you overpay for value. But we always have that disconnect because it's our psychological, emotional you know, pushes that we have to, you know, we've got to be in the markets, we've got to be doing this. And we forget about that there's a mismatch of duration. We buy a stock, right, with the expectation that we're going to hold it a long time. Oh, I, 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 I really like Apple. As in, I'm just picking a number, picking a stock, right? I really like Apple. So I'm going to buy this and, and I'm never going to sell it again. But I'm only buying it right now because it's going up in price. I'm not really looking at their ability to grow earnings at a rate to justify their valuation. Think about this for just a moment. Let's just take Apple as a good example. Again, I, we own, so full disclosure, we own Apple in our portfolio. So, uh, so I'm not picking on Apple. I'm not making you a case of why you need to go sell Apple. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just making an example here. This is a $3 trillion company. Our whole economy is about $24 trillion on an inflation-adjusted basis. Give or t I don't have the exact number, but it's roughly around that, $23, $24 trillion. So Apple, as a function, is valued currently as one-eighth of the entire economy by itself. The question becomes, when you're that large of a company, can you continue to grow earnings at a pace to justify those valuations? And can I continue to support valuations at these levels. Now, again, when we start talking about valuations, Apple trades at, at basically seven and a half times price to sales. Now, what does that mean? In order to maintain seven and a half times price to sales, I'm going to have to grow earnings at about 100% a year to keep the price and uh, the price to sales ratio at the same level. Right? So if you expect the company continue to go higher as it is, you have to have the underlying fundamental support for that. And the question becomes, as a $3 trillion company, how do I continue to grow earnings and revenue at a pace to do that? Well, there's only one way to do that. I can't really grow my sales much faster than I can grow the economy. That's just kind of a function of, of the economy itself. So in order to increase earnings per share... I do that through reducing the number of shares outstanding, right? That's the stock buybacks. And that's why, you know, shares outstanding for Apple have fallen from 19 billion shares to 16 billion over the last five years. They bought back $3 billion worth of uh, 3 billion shares of their own company stock. So if, if I have a dollar's worth of earnings and I reduce that number of shares, I don't have to create more revenue. 
in order to increase my earnings. And Apple's been very aggressive about share buybacks over the last couple of years. And that's okay, right? But share buybacks don't actually increase revenue and earnings to the top line. Now, they've been growing sales. I'm, I'm not saying they're not growing sales. The question that, that we have to ask ourselves, and again, remind you, we're long Apple. We, we like the company. It's, it's, it's doing fine. It's firing on all cylinders. It, it's, it's good. But, but long term, right? If you're buying the stock today, you have to ask yourself how much, you know, how does, how does Apple grow from a three trillion to four trillion to five trillion to a six trillion dollar company in an economy that isn't growing fast enough to support those types of valuations and earnings growth right because it all has to come back down to earnings at the end of the day at the end of the day we all have to come back down to saying okay well this is what earnings are growing at and this is and and this is how we how we're going to value the company but again when we start taking a look at a lot of these companies and especially in the Nasdaq, right? There's there's very few companies that are reasonably valued, even relative to the rate that they can grow earnings. And there's some very fast-growing companies out there, right? NVIDIA, you know, growing earnings very rapidly, especially with a whole new AI invention. But it's hard to justify 40 times price to sales for NVIDIA, right? They just can't grow sales fast enough to justify that valuation. Again, None of this matters in the short term when we've got the middle of the, you know, the AI hype and the chase and I've got to be in the markets and all that sentiment very short term. Markets are going to do what they're going to do on a very short term basis and sentiment drives those returns. And, 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 and so, again, you know, we're in a bull market. People are getting into the market. That's pushing asset prices higher. People are chasing stocks to, to get in because they feel like they're missing out. And so markets can do very funny things in the short term. But again, as investors, we have a duration mismatch because we're buying stocks today going, I'm buying this because it's going up in price. But the next question we need to ask ourselves is, well, how much further can it go up in price given its valuation and its ability to grow earnings? And because as an investor, we are supposed to be, quote unquote, buying stocks for the long term. Right, I'm going to buy the stock. I'm going to hold it for three, five, ten, twenty years, however long it is. And the question is, is how do how does Apple continue to grow at the pace it was growing historically? To do that, and this is particularly in the case of Apple. I see, and this and Apple's a really good case for this. Microsoft also. <clears throat> in 2018, 2019, and 2020, Apple. Apple's earnings per share ran from $3 to $3.31. And then we injected $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the markets, and that basically doubled their earnings. Why? Because people all of a sudden had this money. They all ran out and bought Apple iPhones and Macs and you know whatever else, right? We were all buying electronics so we could do work-from-home stuff. So in 2021, we had this big explosion in earnings in 2022 as well. The question becomes now, X that stimulus, what is going to be the new earnings growth for Apple? It's the same question that we've got to have ultimately for companies like Microsoft, which saw a very similar kind of explosion in earnings in 2021 and 2022 because of all that stimulus. And this is particularly the case when we start talking about the student loan repayments 
they're going to pull an additional $300 or $12 billion out of retail discretionary spending if those restart later this year. So, I mean, there's there's some real questions here that we have to ask ourselves about what we pay for stocks and the value that we ultimately get. Again, short-term, none of this matters. That's all momentum, technicals. Long-term, it does matter a lot. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs> so this morning, uh, oh, welcome back to the show, by the way. So this morning, I sent uh, Governor Greg Abbott a tweet. And I said, apparently, we have an immigration problem on all of our borders. There was a study out by USA uh, USA Today, and it was from the Census Bureau population data. 0.74% of the New Mexico population moved to Texas in 2020. 0.67% of Louisiana, right? So, and you just go on down the list. So just going through all other 50 states, there's roughly, I mean, the, the, the lowest number, I and mean, when you get into states like California, you had one quarter of 1% of California. Think about the the number of people that live in California, right? It's a very populous state. You had one quarter of 1% of that population moved to Texas in 2020. And again, this is just the latest bureau data. So you got 2021, 2022, they're all still moving here, obviously. So I just tweeted uh, Governor Greg Abbott. I said, we have apparently have an immigration problem on all of our borders, right? Not just the southern border, all of our borders. We should charge an immigration tax and then pass that on to property owners in Texas to reduce our property taxes, right? Because property taxes have been a big deal. In Texas, half of the state revenue in Texas comes from property taxes. You know, everybody's, you know, and this is the big shocker for people that are immigrating here from other states. They're going, let's move to Texas. They don't have a state income tax. Yeah, we do. It's just called property taxes. <laughs> it's just not an income tax, but... Half of the state revenue comes from property taxes. And, of course, property tax relief has been one of those big kind of, of issues here in the state. Um, been trying to reform property taxes now for several legislative sessions and haven't made a whole lot of headway. But, you know, I'm just thinking, well, maybe there's another way to do this. Let's just and, and look, we're happy to have you here. Right. Just come on in. Right. Just don't vote the same way you were voting everywhere else. Come in and kind of join the join the game here. But charging immigration tax. Right. Say 500 bucks. Move to Texas, it's gonna cost you five hundred bucks. And then, you know, that goes right to property tax relief. Just remember your refugees and not missionaries. Correct. And then but again, pay a little immigration yeah. fee and reduce our property taxes. Because mm-hmm. that's again, this is it's 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 amazing. And again, it, it is funny because when you take a look at there was a recent study out, and <clears throat> I, I wish I could find it off the top of my head, but um, there was a recent study out showing tax rates across states. And, you know, people move to Texas, you know, Texas, Florida, et cetera. You know, they go, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a no income tax state. And it's true. So, you know, recently, if you won the billion dollar lottery is a good example. If you take the lump sum payout and you pay your, your federal income taxes, that one billion dollars quickly reverts into about two hundred and eighty million dollars. And that's not included. And so if you live in Texas, <clears throat> you wind up with about 280, 300 million dollars after tax. 
you live in a state with a state income tax, you have to give up more of that to pay your state income tax as well. So a lot of people move to Texas going, hey, it's great. There's no income tax in Texas. And then they buy a piece of property. <laughs> and that increases by about 8% a year on average. So uh, again, property tax relief has been a, a very big fight for a long time. But if you take a look at the at the states, all 50 states, Texas is about right in the middle of the pack in terms of how much you pay in taxes in the state of Texas. Now, of, of course, you know, you would need California and New York. Those are at the top of the list. But Texas is not near the bottom. We're about we're around 23, 24, 25 uh, in terms of the amount of taxes that we pay. So, again, you know, just you have to really understand all the impacts of where you're coming from. You know, we love you. Come on to Texas. We love everybody. That's why we're called a friendly state. Love to have you here. Come on in. That's my George Bush impression right there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just uh, just be aware of what you're getting into. And then, of course, everybody's showing up here in the middle of summer going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it is freaker, freaking hotter than heck. And then you, then you have these bird-sized mosquitoes that are flying around. Yeah. <laughs> People go, what have I done? <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, back to work this morning. Uh, we'll see if I get a response from Governor Abbott. I'm, I'm not. I'm not thinking I will, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, he did steal my idea about busing immigrants, but that was a whole other issue. Um, so anyway, back to earnings and and where we are. Um, you know, we we were talking about uh, in the last segment, just talking about you know earnings growth and the and the ability for this. And and again, I've got an article coming out about how the stock market has become detached from the economy. And this is something that really has occurred over the last decade because of all these monetary interventions, these fiscal policies, et cetera. And, and the thing we have to start thinking about now is what's next, right? What, what are we going to do next in, in, in order to sustain this detachment of the market versus the economy? And, and what do I mean by that? Well, if we go back through history, <clears throat> what we find is, is that, and again, going back to 1900 as an example, if you take a look at economic growth, earnings, and the stock market, through 2008, there was a very close correlation. The economy grew at about 6, 6.5%. Earnings grew at about 6.5%, which is exactly what you would expect, right? And stocks grew at about 8%, which is correct, right? So that's 6% growth and about 2% from dividends over, over that long period of time. And so you have this very tight correlation between economic growth and earnings. And this makes complete sense, right? We've talked about this on the show before, is that earnings have to come from economic activity. So whatever you and I spend at the store, we go to the, we go to the grocery store, we go to home, uh, you know, Lowe's or Home Depot, whatever it is, if they ever merge, I guess if Home Depot and Lowe's ever buy each other out, it'd be called hose. Um, the, the, the question becomes... <laughs> Brent, I'm talking about the rake, right? You know, not... Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, okay, yeah, just... Yeah. <laughs> 
I got you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, there, there's a correlation, right? Because what we spend is what the company's revenues are. And from revenues, right, that's where earnings come from. So the, the, the long-term correlation between economic growth and earnings makes complete sense. However, since 2009, the market has grown on average by an additional four percentage points. So the market's grown on average about 12% since 2009. And that, that is, as a, is detached from a 2% economic growth rate during that same period and earnings growth. So we have all this additional liquidity that's coming into the markets from a variety of different angles that's boosting earnings and boosting asset prices well above what the economy can actually generate. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what's next? How are you going to sustain that deviation of earnings from economic activity? And this is the hope, right? So when you take a look at where earnings estimates are right now, going into 2024, at the end of 2024, earnings are expected to be at new all-time highs. And again, I'm not doubting that. I'm not saying that's wrong. All I'm saying is, is that how do we get there, right? What's going to be supporting that surge in economic activity that is going to be required to boost earnings to that level? Or is it going to be simply a function of just a massive amount of stock buybacks, accounting gimmicks, et cetera, to create these operating earnings per shares at levels that analysts expect to help support asset prices where they are? And will real economic activity be a lot slower? And if inflation is falling, then that would correlate. And, and again, this is one of the, the big issues we've got to be thinking about as we go forward. As inflation falls, inflation is a function of economic activity. So as inflation falls, the pricing power for companies has to decline. which is also going to impair earnings. So this is going to be, and again, I'm, I'm, not making, I'm not telling you that, I'm not saying that this is a bear market or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. What I am suggesting is, is that we have to start thinking ahead about where earnings expectations are and what will actually support those earnings. And then more importantly, what will be the support for this expansion of stock growth rates over what the economy can actually generate. Can we continue to sustain 10, 11, 12% annualized rates of return in an economy that's going back towards 2 to 3% economic growth or less? Because if the economic activity isn't supporting the earnings growth, how do you make up the difference in the spread? And that's that's going to be the challenge. I don't have the answer for that. But this is what we have to be thinking about. Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier with Apple and Microsoft, it's great that your company is $3 trillion worth of the economy, right? But how do you continue to support that growth rate in earnings without another $5 trillion in stimulus, without, you know, other monetary supports, et cetera. Because right now, the Federal Reserve is not providing monetary liquidity. The government's really not providing fiscal liquidity outside of the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's working its way through the system. So the question is, is what spending is coming down the pike next? And the answer is, I don't know. 
but it's something we definitely have to think about when we start talking about the duration of our portfolio relative to what future outcomes are going to look like, potentially. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Tipping is getting out of hand. You know, I, I'm a, I'm all for tipping, particularly with servers and and waiters and those type of things, they typically tend to work for sub-minimum wage on kind of their, their base wages. Like they get $2, $3 an hour, whatever it is, and then they survive on tips. So I think tipping is very important. And I always make sure that um, I'm a good tipper, right? And especially if the service is, is good and it deserves a good tip, I'm always happy to tip well. I'm getting a little perturbed, though, with this idea of when I go to pick up something, like, you know, like go to pick up, you know, a, a takeout order or you go to a, a you know, a, a fast food place or whatever and they, you know, spin the little screen around and and, it, and it's, you know, here's your tip amounts, right? And and so I'm tipping somebody for just taking my order and I, I get that, right? Um, but it's getting a little bit, a little bit uh, aggressive in some areas. I mean, it's, again, I don't mind tipping for service and if I'm getting good service, I don't mind paying for that. But if somebody's just taking my order, I kind of have a problem <laughs> with this. And again, it's, it's this guilt factor, right? They spin the screen around. It's, you know, 15, 18, 20, 25 percent, you know, for a tip. And, you know, it's kind of a guilt pressure into tipping for something that you really don't feel like you should be tipping for. And, and again, I, I don't mind tipping. I'm, I'm not against tipping at all. But again, it's just getting to be a little bit aggressive, I think, in terms of of, of tipping. In fact, there was an article about this in the Wall Street Journal talking about why businesses can't stop asking for tips. Uh, and American, this is the headline, right? American businesses have gotten hooked on tipping. Tip requests have spread far beyond the restaurants and bars that have long relied on them to supplement employee wages. Again, if, if you have a waiter or waitress or a wait person, however you want to classify them, um, and they are bringing food to your table, servicing you during the meal, et cetera, and they're doing a great job. Absolutely, they deserve to be tipped. Uh, but now juice shops, appliance repair firms, and even plant stores are now among the services businesses now asking customers to hand over some extra money to their workers. The problem is, is that I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion that that money is not making it to the workers. Uh, the U.S. economy, and so this is a quote from the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. economy is more tip-reliant than it has ever been. But there's a growing sense that these requests are getting out of control and that corporate America is dumping the responsibility for employer pay onto the customer. 
But again, this is going back to that earnings growth that we're talking about. How do I extract more money from the customer? That's where my earnings come from. So again, going back to our whole conversation about how do we generate earnings, it has to come from the consumer because that's who is driving the majority of the economic growth. And the question becomes, if I keep taxing the consumer, this is an additional tax. So now I go to a plant store to buy a plant. I pick it out. And here, here, here's a, you know, there's there's been a big uh, kind of a rash of videos on uh, social media going around. A, a guy had gone to uh, a grocery store and had bought some groceries and checked out and was heading towards the door of the store. And the there was a person at the store checking receipts on the way out and he just walks right through the door and the person's you know yelling at him to you know check his receipt and he just holds the receipt up and says if i'm going to do your job for you because he'd gone through self-checkout he says if i'm doing your job for you then don't expect me you know to have you check my receipt because i just did your job being a checkout and there's been a lot of these videos going around about self-checkout going you know if i'm doing the job for you then like like one guy there was a joke about uh, one guy was in the break room and got caught in the break room and the guy says why are you in the break room he says well i was checking myself out and i needed a break because if i'm working here i should get to use the break room so you know we've we've moved into this whole idea of self-service and now you can go to you know plenty of restaurants etc you know where you're doing half, you're doing more than most of the work and to pick out your own plant, take it up there, blah, blah, check out. Why are you paying a tip for that? You did all the work. And so this is, this is becoming a bit onerous. So some businesses that are new to tipping says they have turned to the practice to try to retain workers in a competitive job market. Also, while keeping their prices low, asking for tips to allow them to increase worker pay without uh, increasing workers, um, without raising their wages. So again, this this all goes back to cost cutting, cost controls. How do I generate earnings in a slower economic environment? The question becomes ultimately is how how much can I do this? At what point do consumers begin to contract? And so far, we haven't. And this goes back to this whole conversation about recessions. Why haven't we re seen a recession yet? Well, so far, consumers have been able to meet the demand. Companies have been able to ask for additional money outside of the cost of their products or services to create additional earnings. So far, they've been able to do that. The question is, is how much more can they do, particularly as we begin to see less savings, you know, excess savings in the economy, less ability to create earnings growth for, for households, right, to increase their incomes, less ability to increase incomes at households, and then more importantly, We've had some excess, you know, income into households because people haven't had to pay rent or uh, pay their mortgage payment previously. Of course, those moratoriums have ended, but now we have this moratorium on student loan payments that are potentially set to end. Where does all where does the you know potentially the rubber meet the road? That's the question we've got to ask. But this is this explains why we've been able to avoid a recession so far. Because consumers have stepped up to meet the demand. And the question becomes, can they continue to do that? Here's some stats from this article I thought were interesting. 
Consumers are seeing tip prompts at every turn, say they are overwhelmed and that worker wages should be the business owner's responsibilities, not theirs. 16% of the 517 small businesses surveyed by employee management software company Homebase for the Wall Street Journal asked customers to leave a tip at checkout that was up from 6.2% in 2019. So you've had an additional 10% of businesses in just the last couple of years pick up tipping as part of this. Payroll company Paychex, which provides software for thousands of business owners and leisure, hospitality, retail, and other service businesses, said more employees are receiving tips as a portion of their pay than any time since the company started tracking tipping in 2010. As of May, 6.3% of, of workers whose employers use the software earned tips compared to just 5.6% in 2020. That number remained relatively flat from 2016 to 2020. So, you know, the, the question becomes, again, and I find it interesting, right? So you have paychecks that says, you know, only about 1% more, about 1.5% more of employees are getting tips as part of their wages, but you've had a 10% increase in the number of small businesses that are asking for tips. So where's the rest of the money going? Right. But again, you know, this is, is just kind of this new dynamic of an, of an economy and, and technology is great. We're, you know, we're all becoming much more digital oriented now and companies have caught on to this idea that using, you know, this kind of software interface, you go in, you order your food, buy your coffee, whatever it is. They spin the screen around. They kind of guilt you into giving a tip, and you just kind of do it, right, because you don't want to look like a schmuck. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you don't want some guy spitting in your coffee in the back because, like, hey, uh, order 12, didn't give a tip. You know, <laughs> you don't know what's happening to your food behind the <laughs> behind the scenes, right? So you, you, you have this guilt complex of doing it, but this is now how companies are, are, and small business in particular are tapping in further into the consumer wallet. But again, the question becomes, how much more is there to get in the current economy? And will, you know, this is the, and this ultimately leads to the point, right? So we talk about these economic and business cycles, and right now we're having an upturn in business cycles. That's what's happening, you know, currently. We should expect to see some economic data to improve here in the next couple of months simply because we're seeing an uptick in some of these uh, some of this data. But the question is sustainability. And again, how much more can you continue to kind of tap into the consumer wallet before that wallet is empty? And again, you know, we and 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 again, you know, we talk about inflation, we talk about price pressures, we talk about all this stuff, but there is other types of inflation, right, than what is measured by the inflation index. And this is why we still see kind of this disconnect between what the Fed says. The Fed says, hey, inflation's down to three percent. Great. But I'm still spending more at my house just trying to keep up with the bills, right? Especially now, you know, again. People moving here, you know, from uh, other states and into the sunny state of Texas in the middle of summer, electric bills are going up rapidly, right? The cost of cooling your home, and you got to in Texas, is running up there. We just had one of our highest electric bills at our house. We have a small house. So that's eating into discretionary spending. While the Fed is talking about these other things that are declining in the economy, what's not captured in the Fed's inflation index is tipping and the number of businesses that are, that are asking for more money from consumers. That's not captured in the price data. And then outside of that, of, of course, remember that for consumers, 
inflation, headline inflation may be 3%, but the prices haven't changed for many consumers. Again, if I measure on a year-over-year basis, if a, if a loaf of bread was $2 last year or whatever it was, and it's $2 this year, inflation is zero, but the price didn't decline any, even though the Fed says it did. So again, the, the question becomes, as we think about the economic cycle where we are right now, things are improving, yes, but sustainability is going to be important as the question becomes, where does the liquidity come from? Where does the money come from to sustain economic activity at these current levels? All right, wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow. Uh, got lots of earnings tomorrow. Big earnings day tomorrow morning, so we'll have stuff to talk about. Uh, of course, also, as we pay attention to this rebalancing today, we'll see what actually turns out this afternoon, see if it matters or not. We'll find out. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Be sure you go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.